guys, I'm fantasy author J.H. Fleming. And I'm fantasy author Philip Dreyer Duncan. And with us, as always, is the potluck pimp of Nantucket. Hello, Christopher. Hi, Phil. We're not alone this time with us as well. And I'm very excited about this as our very first guest ever, author Tracy S. Morris. Hi, Tracy. Hi, guys. It's great to be here. So, Tracy, before I give you her official bio, I'm going to give you the Phil version of the bio and why she is so appropriate as our very first guest. Now, oh boy, here we go. Tracy, there is a possibility that my memory has failed me and that this story isn't true, but I think you should just go with it if I'm wrong. All right. I'm pretty sure in our very first episode, I gave a little bit of my villain origin story about how I came to this whole writer journey. Yeah. And I think I mentioned that there was this one convention I went to. It was the first convention I ever went to in a, in a reasonably small town for a convention. And there were a handful of authors there. And when I got there, I was like, oh, well, I always wanted to be a writer. So I want to listen to at least one of these panels. And before the weekend was up, I had basically gone to every single panel. And if I'm not mistaken, Tracy S. Morris was one of those authors I listened to at that convention, thus making it very, very appropriate that you're our very first guest. All right. What convention? All right. Now, see, the threads are falling apart on my story already. Would have been <laughs> GlitchCon. Oh, OK. So that would have been... Just say yes, Phil. You're well, right. <laughs> <laughs> was that the year that Kevin Anderson was there? It was, yes. Okay, okay. Then that would have been the year that Brad and Sue were there and I was there. Yes. And I'm trying to remember who all else was there. Yeah, I do remember that one. It was uh, Kevin and his wife, Brad and Sue, you, and I think Richard Knack was there? Yes, yes, Richard was there. And Richard was actually somebody who encouraged me to write when I got started. Well, that's how this goes, right? Yes. And you said, I want to be a writer. And we told you Selena's stock answer. No, you don't. Run away. <laughs> and then I didn't. <laughs> and here I am. And you were right. And everyone should run away. <laughs> if you tell them to run away and they don't, then that means that they probably have to write. You know what? That's probably true. That's one thing that I tend to tell people is if you want to write, Stick with fan fiction. If you have to write, maybe you're a professional writer. I think that's probably a fair assessment. By the way, I learned something about you I didn't know. Okay. I don't think JH knows this either, but according to Tracy's official bio, she is actually four ferrets in a trench coat masquerading as a human being. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> Now my secret's out. <laughs> what do I do now? I'm going to have to go into witness protection. Right. <laughs> All right, Tracy's real bio here. She wrote her first novel by Cran on the back of a newspaper and gave it to the postman along with an antique silver dollar so that someone could turn it into a novel. She is still waiting to hear back from the publisher. Tracy, I don't, I don't think that one's happening. Well, that I, to be honest, I was six at the time, so, you know. <laughs> Don't crush my dream. Don't crush your dreams. <laughs> Don't crush my dream there, Phil. They're going to write me. You just watch. Any day now. Any day now. Any day now. I believe you. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> Tracy's first novel, Tranquility, was published in 2005 by Yard Dog Press, and I've read that, and it's really good. Thank you. I like a Tremors vibe to it but more fun. Kind of going for Tremors meets Northern Exposure, if you're old enough to remember what that is. Uh, no. Look it up sometime. Anyway, <laughs> Tranquility was the runner-up <laughs> for the Daryl Award. All right, well, we can get started in earnest. I have a couple public service announcements to make before we really dive in with our guest. Public service announcement number one. I was on the Twitterverse, and I saw an author make a statement about how authors don't pay publishers. They don't pay publishers to edit or get covers or any of those sorts of things. That's what the publisher does. To which a supposed publisher responded, the perfect publisher, free, edits, designs, markets, involves you, and pays well. 
quite the mythical creature. No, that's a publisher. That's what publishers do. The first person was right. So if you're new to this and there is a supposed publisher who wants you to pay them, that's probably not legit. It's like this. Publishers are having to beat off potential authors with a stick. There are so many authors sending in their novels on spec. Publishers don't have to go looking for a novel to publish. So if somebody is contacting you saying, hey, I want to publish your novel, you need to be suspicious. I agree 100%. And that's why I thought it was worth calling out Mm -hmm. because, I mean, J.H., How many of your publishers have you had to pay to publish your books? Zero. How many of them charged you to get a cover done? Zero. How many of them charged you for edits or marketing or anything? Zero. Tracy? Mm Mm-hmm. Big zeros across the board? Big zeros across the board. That's what a real publisher does. A real publisher believes that they can make a commercial success out of your book, whether that's a big traditional publisher or a smaller indie press, whatever, that's one of the ways you know to run away is if they're asking you for money. But hey, don't worry, guys. This supposed publisher only wanted $400 for these fees, these services. So that's your public service announcement number one. Public service announcement number two, and I actually saw an agent had mentioned this on the Twitterverse, With some confusion, it seemed like she was genuinely asking the question, like, why am I seeing so many authors who are talking about querying their self-published titles? And why do they think that that's okay? Mm, I saw that too. Yeah, guys, that's not really how that works. Once it's published, it's published, whether you self-published it or not. Look, I know that there's going to be stories about, well, such and such self-published, and then they got a big deal. That's probably because they did really good as a self-published person and somebody offered to pick it up and they didn't want to go through the trouble of self-publishing anymore. And there are some big names that that's happened with. Mm -hmm. So what is querying? Querying is when you're sending out what's called a query letter to either an agent or a publisher who has open submissions. And basically that's going to have info about who you are as an author. You know, if you've had anything else published, won any awards that sort of thing, and then info about your story or novel, whatever you're submitting. So that's to try to see if they're interested. So if you're submitting to an agent, you're trying to get them to represent you. If you're submitting like a story to a magazine, you're trying to get them to publish it. And from there, depending on the agent or publisher, it can take different paths. Some of them will, if they're interested, maybe see like the first 10 pages or something. If it's a magazine, they may immediately accept it, or they may want you to make some revisions first. It just depends on what you're querying and who you're querying. So agents and publishers, if you're querying them, you're looking to get into a business relationship with them. Chances are they're not going to get into a business relationship with you if they don't think that your product is viable. And if it's already been self-published, chances are anybody who's going to read it could have read it at that point. And so if you're going to an agent or a publisher with something that's already been published, they're not going to see that as viable. Gotcha. Yeah, by and large, you're going to see that most publishers, most agents are going to downright tell you they're not even going to look at something that's been published in any format. So if you're wanting to go the traditional route, agent, editor, all that good stuff, then don't self-publish the title first. That's not a good idea. Right. If you have something new and you have self-published in the past, you can take that to an agent. There are agents who will handle hybrid authors, but it needs to be new and it needs to be unpublished and it needs to be good because, again, they want something that they feel like they can actually sell. I was basically going to say the same thing. The only benefit to self-publishing and querying is if you've got different projects you're working on and say you have a self-published series that does really well, you can then mention that in your query letter when you're submitting for a completely different book because then you can say, hey, this series did really well. I already have an audience. These people are probably going to want my new book that I'm sending to you that is not published. Yep. Shows them that you've had some success, you're building an audience, you do have people who will buy this thing. Yep, agreed. 
All right. Those were my two public service announcements, but I did have one thing I just wanted to bring up with the group. Somebody mentioned this to me the other day, and I kind of freaked out a little bit about what a good idea it would be. Do you guys remember Book It? Mm, I don't think so. Really? Just me? I'm the only one? Book It? When you were in school, they didn't have Book It? I feel bad for all three of your lives. All right, listen, when I was in elementary school, there was a program called Book It. And basically, if you read a book, you did some kind of a book report thing. And then they gave you a voucher to go to Pizza Hut and get a free kids pan pizza thing. Mm. But what was really exciting about it for me was, well, one, we were poor, so we didn't get to have Pizza Hut. That was fancy food. And two, the new X-Men cartoon had just started. And they were doing a promotion at Pizza Hut where if you went and got a kid's meal, then you got a free comic book and like an X-Men cup and some swag. I read so many books. I read all of the books. The only reason I bring this up, we need book it for adults. Oh, yeah. I would do that. I would do that. Free pizza every time you finish a book. I mean, J.H. would probably prefer a taco. Or a quesadilla every time she finished a book. But I'm all about that personal pan pizza. Let's make it happen. Free coffee. Free coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody put that together. All right. Should we focus on our guest of honor here? Let's do it. If you must. Tracy, what do you got going on? I mean, I already know, actually. But as the person interviewing you on the podcast, I'm supposed to say, what are you working on these days? Well, the thing I'm most well known for at the moment is the 1632 universe, which Bane Books has put out over the past two decades, a series of books about a town in West Virginia that gets transposed through space and time to 1632 in the middle of Thuringia, which is present day Germany, right in the middle of the Thirty Years War. And so you've got a bunch of Americans who are out there and they decide, well, we're going to start the American Revolution a few hundred years early. And so it was an incredibly successful series, New York Times bestsellers, all that kind of thing. Do you know, is that the biggest series in science fiction and fantasy? It probably is, right? The biggest series I've been a part of. I don't it's definitely not the biggest series out there. I don't know. It might be for science fiction and fantasy. I couldn't imagine what would have more volumes in it, especially when you consider, you know, the Grantville Gazette and everything else that went into that universe. I co-wrote a series of short stories with Brad Siner with two characters. And, oh, there are about nine, ten of them that were in the Grantville Gazettes. And then... In 2021, everything that we did was collected together, and Eric Flint had, at the time, a small press he called the Ring of Fire Press, and he started putting out ancillary novels that were too small for Bain to put out, and so our novel was one of those. And then, unfortunately, Eric Flint passed away this last year, and his widow decided not to keep the press going, and so the book is no longer in circulation. However, the rights to that reverted to myself and Brad. And so sometime before the end of summer, we are going to find another publisher or put it up ourselves. So that's what's on my desk at the moment. Beyond that, I'm looking to put out a series on Kindle Vela before the end of the summer. And that'll be an original story. Tentatively, it's called My Karma Ran Over My Dogba. And it's about a reporter who, she can do magic, but if you do magic, you accrue bad karma. And so she's trying to avoid doing that. And in the meantime, she's also trying to stop a fairy invasion. And she's being stalked by a supervillain, and she's trying to avoid that person. And she happens to catch an evil fairy in a bottle. And it's like carrying around Cthulhu in a bottle. And she can't get rid of it. And she spends half the novel just trying to get rid of it. So she has a bunch of misadventures. And that's what I'm working on currently. Sounds fun. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Good. I googled it real quick. It looks like there are 90 plus novels in the 1632 series. It was immense. And despite the fact that the novels are not actively being produced. Bain had contracts for, I think, four more. And so Bain is still putting them out. 
No, that's cool. And a lot of the authors who have their rights reverted to them are putting them out here and there. Yeah, I always thought it was really cool that Eric Flint did that, that he shared his universe with so many people that way. I thought that was really cool. It was. It was it was fun to be a part of it. And there were challenges, but overall it was it was in my wheelhouse because I love history. It was fun and the characters were funny and one of the characters we wrote was a redhead and she was very much in the style of I Love Lucy. And so it was just wacky to write. That's cool. Speaking of which, I've never done alt. Well, I guess I can't say never, but I've not done much alternate history. Mm-hmm. What is that process like? And how much research time did you have to put into what you were doing? Well, it was a big shared universe before I got into it. And so Brad and I tried to keep our characters in their own little corner, doing their own little things so that we didn't interfere with anything that was going on in the bigger universe. There was research in what was going on with history. There was research in what was going on with the universe. And there was research in what had been changed and what hadn't. So that, you know, to a certain extent, our own thing is going on. But if we violate certain things that happened in history or certain things that happened in our own canon, you will hear about it because there is some pedantic little reader out there who will come back and tell you, hey, you got this wrong. If you guys could see Chris's face, he's raising his hand right now like that would be him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then there was some unexpected research that I wasn't expecting that I would have because when it started, the characters were transposed back in time were transported back in time the summer before 9-11. Oh, yeah. And so from that point on, our world, as time marched on, has changed immensely. And so every time I wrote the characters, I had to make sure that they weren't grounded in modern pop culture. So it's like, is this playing something new since summer of 2000? Is this technology too new for what they would have had when they went back in time? And so there was a lot of history then. We've got a train. There's a train ad coming. Train ad coming, everyone. Are you tired of overly long, complicated, and pretentious reading material? Annoyed with meandering plots and words that make you reach for a dictionary? What you need is a staycation with the ongoing series The Blade Mage, a fast-paced urban story where elements of sci-fi and fantasy meet mystery and take you on an adventure, always through the scenic route. Worried about price? Not to fret. There's not a $5 word in the Blade Mage. So head over to Amazon and start your adventures with Wyatt, courtesy of author Philip Dreyer Duncan. I had to do some pretty deep dives just historically. I wrote a story that was supposed to have been set around Mount Vesuvius and was dealing with Pompeii. And so I had to go back and I had to figure out what had been dug up at the time of this setting, what had not been dug up. And Mount Vesuvius, I don't know if you know this, erupts uh, every 10 or 15 years. It's not as big as the big eruption that buried everything, but the mountain changes the way it looks. And so I had to actually go back and figure out for this time period, would they be able to go up and look into the caldera or not? So I scoured the internet And I found the book that had the information that I wanted. And I ended up ordering the book from Thrift Books. And I got it in and I did all the research and I read the book and all that for two lines in one story. Oh, wow. And that's how it is when you're looking for history. That's the very reason every time I've thought about doing alternate history, I'm like, oh, it'd be so cool to do fill in the blank. And then I'm like, wait. I have to do so much research. If I just make up a fantasy world or write a sci-fi, I'll just make it all up and it's fine. I don't have to do any research at all, which is a lie because I ended up doing research to tie (laughs) things together. Yeah. I was going to say, I actually had to do research for even as a fantasy author. So I'm not much of like a gardener or know much about when things grow or any of that stuff, what can be planted together. And I was trying to look up if apples and... I don't even remember what the other fruit was. Some other type of fruit tree. I wanted to know, can they grow in the same orchard? And 
spent, I don't know how long trying to research that and kept finding stuff about like soil types and grafting and all this stuff. It's like, it's just a yes or no question. I just, I just need yes or no. That's all. You could probably call your county extension service and they can tell you. I don't even know what a county extension service is. <laughs> they probably could. I probably won't be calling. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of thing that we used to have to do before we had Google is you just call somebody up just randomly out of the blue say, hey, I'm writing a book. I need some research. Can I talk to you? And most people would just be like, well, sure. Great. And that's how it worked. So this current book I'm writing, the one with the reporter, it's spun out of a bunch of short stories I've written over the past 30 years. And so they were set in New York City originally. And so many things have changed just in 30 years in New York City that finally I just... It's no longer set in New York City. It's set in an alternate place called New Orange City. (laughs) And the reason for that is there's a short like 10 year span when New York was taken back by the Dutch and they renamed it New Orange. (laughs) That's funny. It's now alternate fantasy history. Fair enough. Fair enough. J.H. and I started a book together. So she's really the only person I've co-authored with. And I've I've worked in other people's shared universes a little bit, but I've not actually done a lot of shared universe and co-authoring. Could you talk about what that's like a little bit and what do you have to do to make it work? Okay. Brad Sinar, my co-writer, he was the one who originally suggested that I get into this universe. And we were at SoonerCon, oddly enough. And yay, SoonerCon. Paula Goodlett, who was the editor of the Grantville Gazettes at the time, was one of the guests there. And so we were at a coffee clatch and Brad introduced me to her and he said, I want to co-write with this person. She's got some ideas. You know, can we pitch a couple to you? And so I came up with the idea for this first story right then. And she's like, well, if you will submit it through the Baines Bar and the way they used to do things is you would put a story up on the bar And the people who were regular contributors would go through and pick it apart. And if you could survive that gauntlet and the story was good enough, they'd pick it up. And so Paula, I guess, liked it enough that we had the story up for a couple hours. And she said, "Okay, I think I want to go ahead and take this. And so the way we did things is Brad was always really good at starting things. So he would start the first part of the story, and then I would come in and write the second part, and we would ping pong off of each other. That's not everybody's process, but that's what worked for us. And that's the way we've been writing things um, up until he had his stroke. He's getting better now, and so we were kind of working back towards that as our working style. But um, if you look in the book that we just put out, the last novella and short story, were ones that I had written while he was uh, working through his difficulties following his stroke. Love you, Brad. Love you, Brad. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, I want to make sure I didn't forget. The last time I saw you, which wasn't that long ago, you were complaining about a certain topic that JH and I can't really help people with, but maybe you can. What is it like trying to write in these summer months with all the little ones at home? Ah, well, when they're going to school, my process is that I get up before they do and I write and then I get them up and take them to school. Over the summer, I'm just trying to squeeze in the writing wherever I can. I really ought to get up before they do still. And I found it's a bit hard to do. But um, I carry a notebook with me. I carry a pen with me. And anytime I get 15 minutes of just quiet that they're not going to interrupt me. I'll sit down and I'll just try to get what I can. Right now, we had the chance to go to Branson and take three days just to kind of have a vacation. And so they were running around the condo screaming like it's a playground. And I just kind of left my husband to it. And I shut the door and I was out on the balcony writing. (laughs) And I managed to finish up the chapter of my work in progress doing that. Any general tips for little ones and keeping on schedule with your writing? 
you kind of got to protect your writing time. If you can block it out, have maybe the same time every day and just kind of teach them that between this hour and this hour, you go to daddy because mommy is busy doing her work. You know, my husband works from home. They know that when daddy's in the office, they don't go bother him because he might be on the internet with a client or whatnot. And so they can understand daddy works. They can understand mommy works. That's something that I've negotiated with my husband. And that's something that we've negotiated with the kids. It's just, you don't go to mommy at this time. You don't go to daddy at this time. You just got to keep reinforcing that till they understand it. Because honestly, they will go right past their dad straight to me with the problem just because I'm mommy. (laughs) Mommy's the problem solver. Mommy knows where everything is. Mommy's the one who did the laundry. And, you know, they've had to learn daddy's just as capable of figuring it out as mommy is. One last one for you, and then we'll do the news. Do you have any upcoming appearances anywhere? I'm going to be at SoonerCon coming up. Best convention ever. Not to oversell it. (laughs) Best convention ever. Best convention ever. Yeah. I've been going to SoonerCon a long time, and they have done better than most conventions at changing with the time and staying relevant. And that's saying a lot. It really is. I love that convention. And actually, just before we started recording, we were sharing notes. We've got our schedules up. Yes. And I don't know if JH was on for this part. Guess what cool panel that Tracy gets to moderate? What? I'm getting to moderate a bunch of cool panels. You're going to have to narrow it down, Phil. The one you were bragging to me about as soon as we started, the Mandalorian. Oh, yes. This is the way. I get to moderate the Mandalorian panel. I have spoken. (laughs) nice yeah no this summer we introduced our kids to the mandalorian and it's been fun we just wrapped up season two with them oh good that's cool yeah we're about to roll into season three nice with a little side trip into book of boba fett because you kind of have to watch part of that to get season three Half of it was season 2.5 of The Mandalorian, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it really was Mandalorian 2.5. All right, cool. Should we do the news? Yes. All right, our very first piece of news this week is a very sad one. Author Cormac McCarthy has passed away. He was known for The Road, Blood Meridian, No Country for Old Men, A lot of very famous novels, some of which were made into movies. For me personally, I read Blood Meridian, and I will never forget the night I finished reading it. It was one of those where it was a work night, and one of my buddies was staying at my house because we worked together, so we'd carpool and stuff. And, you know, we were like, all right, good night. And I was like, I'm just going to read another chapter. And then I ended up reading through to the end. And the end was such a mind-bending mess that I couldn't sleep. And I got up and I went and woke my friend up and I was like, hey, you got to get up and listen to me talk to you about this book. (laughs) Which that friend is the same one who helped J.H. on her album, the one I called a loser last week. Sorry, Jason, I love you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it is very sad to hear about the passing of Cormac McCarthy. He was an incredible author, just had a real... The language he used was really more like painting a picture to me. That's how I, in my mind, like his use of words was just beautiful. Even in the the dark and terrible things, uh, he was uh, an absolute master of his craft. All right. Looks like I'm up next. Before I do, I just want to call out a funny ad on the screen because it made me chuckle. It is an ad for Cosmo Nights, book two. And The description says, when the galaxy is out to get you, it's good to have lesbians with laser swords on your side. (laughs) I didn't notice that. (laughs) That sounds fun. (laughs) 
<laughs> There's a free ad for you, author <laughs> Hannah Templer with the Cosmo Knights. <laughs> free ad on our podcast. That is an amazing picture and an amazing ad. Yep. All right. Actual news now. <laughs> this one's more just a reminder. We'd mentioned on a previous episode that Amazon's about to change their KDP paperback price. And that goes into effect on June 20th, so just a few days from now. And that's just affecting the print price. It doesn't affect the cost per page. I think it should only go up for about 15 cents if you're doing a trade paperback. Yeah, so check your book prices, you indie people. Make sure that your stuff's not messed up. I say that knowing full well I still haven't gone and checked mine. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) And for our next piece of news, Which, I gotta be honest, Chris and J.H. are picking on me. They wanted me to do this because they knew I couldn't say these names correctly. (laughs) But according to the European Commission, the Commission has approved, under the EU merger regulation, the proposed acquisition of Lagarder by Vivendi. (laughs) I think I said that right. (laughs) The Commission's decision is conditional upon full compliance with the commitments offered by Vivendi. Today's decision follows an in-depth investigation of the proposed acquisition. Vivendi and Lagarder are two large French multimedia groups. In particular, Vivendi via Editis and Lagarder via Hachette. Listen, I got to stop this right now. Hatchet or Hachette? Because lately, it feels like I keep hearing Hachette, and for years, everyone said Hatchet. I need to know. Somebody tell me. So I've heard it pronounced hatchet. Well, that's a third one. I can't deal with a third one. <laughs> okay. I swear audiobooks used to be like hatchet audio, and now they're like hatchet. That may not even be true. I might be making that up. If you think about it like Corvette, you got the E-T-T-E, so it should be. That's probably fair. All I'm saying is I heard hatchet forever. Anyways, the reason that this story is of interest is because it involves Hachette or Hatchet or however Tracy said it. Hachette? Yeah, that's why. Anyways, let's move on. I think Tracy's going to pick up the next news story. These best-selling authors will be at the Library of Congress's National Book Festival. Among a packed list, actor Elliot Page, NFL player R.K. Russell, and poet laureate Ada Limon. Get ready to adjust your summer reading list. The Library of Congress announced a packed lineup of prominent authors who will speak at its 23rd National Book Festival on August 12th. Each year, tens of thousands of readers flock to the one-day event, which is free, doesn't require tickets, and takes place at the Walter E. Washington Convention Center. The festival will feature author talks, book signings, and kids programming across several stages. In addition to Elliot Page and R.K. Russell... Teacher and advocate Chastain Budigeig, George Saunders, Amor Towles, Elizabeth Acevedo, Matthew Desmond, Siddhartha Mukherjee, Mary Shapiro, Mary Louise Kelly, Chuck Kwan, Anya von Bremsen, Ada Limon, Camille T. Dungy, and many more. So they, I think they were picking on you too, Tracy. They knew you wouldn't be able to say the names either, right? You've been lumped into the podcast dunce category with me. <laughs> oh, my. This is just a global map of pronunciations. <laughs> and that was brought to us by the Washingtonian.com. All right. Chris is going to talk to us about AI, but just before he does, for those interested, one of our author friends who may or may not, but definitely is going to be a guest very soon, best-selling crime author Gary Phillips wrote a short that just came out a few days ago with sort of his dystopian view of what could happen with AI. It's posted on the stansberryforum.com. If you go to stansberryforum.com, you should be able to find it. I bet you if you Google Stansberry Forum and Gary Phillips, You can probably find it. It's really good. It's really creepy. And it's a very scary outlook of the robot overlords. But yeah, it just came out a few days ago. And Gary's going to be on before too long. And we'll have a chat with him about it. To you, Christopher. 
in our continued coverage of our robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> on June 13th, 2023, Sifwa posted a current statement on AI and ML use, wisely indicating they are not experts on the technology or the laws that will pertain to it that as of yet are largely undefined, though offering some standing principles that pertain in ways that are already evident. The first two worked well together, and I found them to be the easiest to apply. Creators must be compensated for the use of their work, and their contributions must be credited. As of yet, there's no clear path to do that with the tools that are currently on the market. Given the clandestine nature of the data that was used to train the data models, it's impossible to say with certainty who would actually be needing to be credited in whatever it produces. Uh, Yeah, interesting. I heard that AI kind of is, in a way, sort of what was kind of the catalyst that led to Reddit deciding to push its major changes for pricing and things, which then angered all their third-party API people. And now there's a big blackout on Reddit. I don't know if that's 100% accurate, the first few parts of what I said. Chris is nodding. I, I know there were API changes, and the last two days have been very boring. <laughs> yeah, because there's nothing on there. They've basically broken it. Now, what I'd heard was that some of the AI builders had cruised through Reddit's data to uh, train their machines. Whoa. And Reddit was like, whoa, 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 whoa. If somebody's going to be using our data that way, we should be getting paid for it. And then that's sort of what led them to go, we need to you know, make some other changes. That may not be accurate. I don't know. What definitely is accurate is that Reddit is all but basically dark right now. I know that there are a bunch of Reddit people who are migrating to Tumblr because Tumblr is freaking out about it. (laughs) But Tumblr freaks out about everything. Tumblr freaked out with lots of people migrating from Twitter earlier this year. So (laughs) it's Tumblr. What do you expect? I must not be using Tumblr right because mine's just all like really pretty nature photos and like witch cottages and stuff. Very relaxing. (laughs) I guess I subscribe to the drama side of Tumblr. (laughs) I should curate that. (laughs) Christopher, you got anything else for us on AI? I do. Sifwa also mentions, as JH has previously pointed out a few episodes ago, Several fiction markets will not accept any work that was produced in part or in whole with the help of AI. Yeah, so be smart, people. Know what you're doing. Know the rules. Don't get yourself blacklisted (laughs) right out the gate. Another article from the Society of Authors was actually talking about a lot of the same concepts, but in practical terms, like how to protect yourself in your contract language, things like that, about, you know, what your publisher can and can't use your work for specifically adding a clause that says it can't be used to train AI, things of that nature. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but it may very well become part of the language in any and all contracts moving forward, right? Right. And it probably should be. If it's not in there, maybe you should be concerned. Now, on the flip side of that, good e-reader actually went a completely different direction in how to have ChatGPT summarize books for you. (laughs) That's funny to me because that is a hard skill. I think I've gotten okay at it, you know, but that is a a very challenging skill for a lot of people, particularly in the indie space where they have to do their own back cover matter. I could see people wanting to use AI for that. Well, one interesting thing that was actually called out in the Society of Authors article is if the AI is accessing copyrighted work without permission from the copyright holder, it's a copyright infringement according to UK law, even if the copy is only held for a short time before deletion. Hmm. So that's a potential issue for anybody that's actually uploading the content. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, it feels like to me, I would just want to stay away from it for the time being, If especially anything I'm planning to do with any publisher, big or small, it probably needs to be completely outside of the realm of AI. But if I'm working on self-published stuff, maybe... I would uh, be willing to use some tools. I can't even imagine what I'd want to use them for, really, because even writing my back cover matter, I still, I I don't know, I kind of like doing that myself. I just don't know really what a person would use it for right now that would be 
of good consequence. Well, Phil, one thing you will appreciate is the Society of Authors article actually talked specifically about anything you're giving it, copying things like your style and your voice. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll see. I'm still not convinced on that front. We'll we'll see how it plays out. I think it's going to be a while before it can copy my stupid voice. Yeah, I saw that face, Chris. Ooh, you know what that just reminded me of? What's that? Do you remember that Doctor Who episode? He's on the planet and he gets stuck in like that tram thing and there's like the mimic creature that starts mimicking him and then like takes over to where like whoever they're mimicking, they can't speak anymore and then like kind of becomes them and speaks like them. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, you need to read Gary's short that he did about it. It's super creepy. The thing is, what Gary put together is super creepy, but also when you read it, you're like, I could totally see this shaping up. In other news, scammers. I have two different articles from recent times about scammers, which almost goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode with my public service announcements. I just want to call out what they've sort of listed here and... It's obviously an issue when multiple sources are trying to warn us authors about scammers. Anybody who's been around for a minute knows that they're really bad and they've only gotten worse the better the internet gets. In fact, there's probably AI in a lot of them. A lot of them are probably using AI now. I don't know. But our first source here is the blog of Ann R. Allen. And it is a post by Ann herself. And it says 10 facts writers need to know to stay safe from scammers. And she calls out, Scammers are impersonating well-known publishing professionals. That's scary. They offer a dream job writing for a streaming service. Come on, guys. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Bogus indie book contest. That one would be easy to fall into. If you pay money up front, it's not traditional publishing. Oh, look at that. Same thing that we talked about at the beginning. Literary agents don't phone writers who have not queried them. Yeah, again, I think Tracy said it. The agents are busy. They have lots of things going on. They're not hunting for you. You know, they're going through submissions and there's a process. The next one that they have listed as agents are not marketers or book promoters. The next one is nobody in the big five wants a failed self-published book. We talked about that as well. You don't query agents or editors with a published copy of a book. Again, that's the same thing that we talked about. Netflix, Acorn, a famous Mexican film director and or a movie star will not contact an unknown writer, believe it or not. A website is not proof that a business is legitimate. That is very important to remember. Marketing packages sold by vanity presses are worthless. If you pay a lot of money for a screenplay of your novel, what you have is an expensive screenplay, not a movie deal. Republishing isn't a thing. Write a new book. And then she gave a lot of detail behind each of these. Again, that was at Anne rallen.com in her blog. Additionally, Draft2Digital put out two separate articles covering what I'm going to guess are probably going to be the same topics, but let's just see. Vanity presses, literary agents. That's what they covered in the first part of it. And in the second part, overpriced services, copyright registration, bogus marketing services, writing contests and awards. And then they have a section at the bottom called Final Thoughts, Do Your Due Diligence. Definitely worth reading through. Again, that was draft2digital.com on their blog. They have two articles covering scammers in our current world, which really means that we all need to be very careful about scammers. Well, if more than one person is putting out an article, there's probably a bit of an uptick in the scammers. Yeah. 100%. All right. Next bit of news. The Horror Writers Association has just opened up their submission window for multiple scholarships. It looks like they have different ones, Horror Writers Association Scholarship, Mary Wollenstone Craft Shelley Scholarship, Dark Poetry Scholarship, and many others. You can find those listed on their website, horrorscholarships.com. It says the submission window is June 1st to August 1st, and you don't even have to be a member of the organization to apply. These scholarships are supposed to help authors looking to pursue a career as a writer of horror fiction, nonfiction, or poetry. And they also like offer endowment to libraries to expand their young adult reading programs. So yeah, these could be really cool scholarships. And if you qualify for one of those, you should definitely check them out. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
Clearing West, which is well known for doing a summer workshop that you have to apply to and be accepted to. They are hosting a write-a-thon from June 25th through August 5th, 2023. Write-a-thon is a time of year they set aside to focus on the wider writing community. Participants set writing goals for themselves, create personal write-a-thon pages, and write. Kind of like NaNoWriMo in the summer. That's cool. Yeah. It says, achieve your writing goals, meet other writers in the online affinity group, level up your writing with weekly writing prompts, join sprints and writing sessions. Registrants get exclusive access to writing classes and webinars. There's no cost and no obligation. Anyone at any level can participate in the Write-A-Thon, an opportunity to write alongside the six-week workshop participants. You can use the Write-A-Thon to set personal goals in writing. You can cheer others on, meet fellow writers, and raise funds for Clarion West. The Write-A-Thon brings together Clarion West alumni, instructors, and new friends from around the world in one big happy puddle of writerly support. So it looks like it's NaNoWriMo, but with an education track. Well, that's neat. So yeah, if anybody signs up for that, they should let us know about it. You can find more information on the Clarion West website. All right, cool. And now for something I'm going to pretend I knew about before I read it online. The Audis are open for submissions. The Audis are apparently a audiobook contest. And let's see what it says here. Who may enter? Publishing companies, licensees, distributors, authors, and rights-holding producers of audiobooks released for the first time in the United States during the period from November 1st, 2022 to October 31st, 2023. If you are not a rights holder, you must get written permission from a rights holder to submit. So, I mean, that's pretty open for lots of people to be able to submit. And yeah, I guess it's an award for audiobooks. So that's at A-U-D-I-E awards.com. Oh, crap. That's me. <laughs> better leave that in. I'll get right on that. Hashtag Chris sounds hot. Barnes & Noble is putting out a new version of the e-reader in 2023 called the Glowlight Plus 2023. And it's going to be a 7.8-inch e-reader that is IPX8 waterproof. So it can say submerge in fresh water for up to 60 minutes, as well as allow you to play audiobooks via Bluetooth for the first time. For all your underwater reading needs. <laughs> that is the nook, by the way. I could see divers that are decompressing. They need to spend time <laughs> at 30 feet before they come up to 20 feet. What are you going to do with those 15 minutes? They have headsets that you can wear underwater. So now you stuff that in your swim trunks, you put your headset on, you do laps. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is when I'm underwater fighting a shark, what I really need is the future bestseller podcast in my ears. Really gets me up and going. Something about Chris's voice. It does make people want to punch stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else about the new Nook you want to tell us, Chris? Nope. All right. That's going to be our news segment. <laughs> All right. For tools this time around, we're actually going to talk about one of the most important tools a writer can have. Uh, maybe not as much today unless you're still handwriting, but that tool is a pen. I've used a bunch of different ones over the years. I actually have a pouch I carry around with me in my backpack full of, it's got like 10 or 15 different pens in there. <laughs> but the one I use for actual handwriting, if I'm working on a novel or a story, is, let's see what it's actually called. The Pentel Intergel Liquid Gel Ink, also the BL407. Right, isn't it? What was that code? That's on the back of the pen. You can Google it by BL407. Uh, yeah, I see that. Yeah. It's going to be a yeah. model number. Yes. I just wasn't seeing it on mine. So yeah, Phil actually introduced these to me. And bought me a couple. We've actually bought each other these things over the years and pretty much just keep getting new ink and refilling them and then reusing them. I actually had a funny thing to mention because I work at a part-time job as an administrative assistant in an office. And for some of the work I do, they like me to use a red pen. 
for this like receiving stuff into the warehouse and whatnot. So the red ink stands out on you know the black and white page normally. I don't know what brand those are, but they're like some sort of plastic pen. And I don't know why, but the bodies after so many uses, they start like trying to come apart. So I'll literally be writing and all of a sudden the pen will like fall into pieces in my hand and I have to like put it back together and then it'll just pop apart again. So I got tired of it recently. And so I'll actually take, I have two of these, the nice pens. I have a black one and a purple one. And I took the black one, unscrewed it, put the red ink in it. And I've just been using that instead of the plastic ones that keep falling apart on me. And that's my thing now is I'll change out my ink in the morning, change it out again when I'm leaving. So that way I don't have to worry about their dang plastic pens. Yeah, it's the best pen. I will allow no argument. It is the greatest pen of all time. I have written with lots and lots of pens and they all make my hand kind of cramp after a little bit. Because when I'm actually writing and I get into like the flow state, I'm still moving pretty quick. So after a page or two, Basically, any pen is going to make my hand start cramping. For whatever it is, these silly metal Pentel BL407, I can write for hours without my hand cramping. I even borrowed from a friend a like $1,000 Mont Blanc that was a rollerball. Two or three pages and my hand started bothering me. I gave it back to him and I think he even let me use his, was it a fountain Mont Blanc? He let me try like two different Mont Blancs and same story with both of those. My $7, I guess they're up to $10 now, inflation. My $10 metal pen that you can get at any Walmart, I've seen them at Target, Dollar General occasionally. They're the best pens I've ever used and they last me forever and I just buy ink for them. The one thing I'll call out, I like the 0.7 millimeter Needlepoint, I believe, is the one I like, where JH prefers the 0.7 millimeter ballpoint. Yeah. I can't do the needlepoint because for some reason, when I'm handwriting, the ink will start acting like it's running out. And then I'll look at it and it's like, no, it's still full. Why are you on the page? It looks like I'm running out of ink. And that's annoying to me, so I can't use needlepoint. Did you say pinflation? Maybe. No, I'm not that clever. I didn't say pinflation. But hey, listen, let's all pretend I did. And that would have been so super clever. (laughs) Almost as clever as the joke about my pens. I am so obsessed with these pens. I have to buy them by the box because I will like I'll start talking to a writer friend. We'll be at a convention or something. And we talk about pens and people complain about pens. And I'm like, oh, you've got to try this. And then I just give it to them. In fact, we went and had dinner with one of our writer friends the other day. And he whipped out his pen tail. BL407 and showed me and I was like, there's no way that's the same one I gave you years ago. And he was like, no, it's not. I had to replace it, but I still use the same pen. But I got so many of them. I started like I even started putting my name on them. And I was telling Chris the other day, I I showed someone and they were like, oh, I get it. It's your pen name. (laughs) (laughs) But they're they really are great. And the metal ones, it's not like they, they will. The more you use them, eventually they'll start kind of falling apart, but they last for a long time. I've got a special one JH got for me that I've been using for years, and I'll just buy boxes of ink from Amazon. They're like 12 or $13, and you get a pack of 10 or 20 or something. So that's my pen. I will say the caveat that he mentioned that they fall apart over time. I've had the same ones he got me like seven years ago. I've got three, two purple ones and one black, and... They're all still perfect. I write hard. I write hard, okay? (laughs) If you ain't first, you're last. (laughs) Tracy, do do you have a particular pen you're obsessed with? Okay, before we get started, I've got to put out a plug. Rhonda Udaly, who is a friend of mine who is a writer. Love you, Rhonda. Love you, Rhonda. She has a pen focused blog. And so she writes about whatever pen she happens to be writing with, and she likes to collect pens, so she writes about the pens she collects as well. I didn't know that. And so it's worth checking out. Huh. Cool. She also, for a while, worked for the city of Dallas, so it trailed off a little bit because of COVID, and she was very busy doing professional government stuff. But it's a good blog. It's worth checking out. That's cool. 
R-H-O-N-D-A-E-U-D-A-L-Y.com. And when I call up her website, they are on the front page as a ballpoint pen review. She was reviewing the BIC Refillable Rechargeable. Now I'm going to have to see if she's done the Pentel BL407. So when I'm writing, my current favorite is any kind of liquid ink rollerball. Right now I'm using the Pilot Precise V5. And what I like about that is that it's a smooth, steady stream of ink, and I don't have to press down hard in order to get the ink to come out. When it starts running low, there's no blots and blobs. And as you were complaining earlier about hand cramping, I don't have to press down hard. I don't have to grip hard. And so my hand does not cramp and I can write for longer. I also like the Sharpie Ultra Fine permanent markers. And I discovered those when I was bullet journaling, but they're great for taking notes. You can get them in a bunch of different colors. And so if you're a note taker, or if you're trying to keep track of things in a scene, you can write with different colors, and they're great for that. And also, they dry quickly. They do not transfer onto, if you're writing in a notebook, they do not transfer onto the next page. Very nice. Christopher, do you have any? I know you're not a Scrivener like us, but I know you've got some pen things. I've only got pen things because I'm a lefty, so I have some unique challenges. And actually, it's entirely Phil's fault that I have a pen thing at all. So as much (laughs) crap as he wants to give me, it's his fault. But yeah, these days, I'm actually using a Lamy Studio Fine Nib Steel Round Tip. (laughs) And I have to use that with actual fountain pen paper so that I don't smear it more often than I absolutely have to. Because you write backwards. No, (laughs) when I write backwards, I don't smear it. It got me when you were talking about writing in all the different colors. My wife has started doing that to keep track of calendars and things at her work. And she uses the jelly roll because they've got all the fancy like metallic mm-hmm. colors. And oh, yeah, those are cool. But she she's an art buff. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. Final thoughts on pens. Pens good. I've got a final thought on pens. Mm-hmm. Pentel BL407. BL407. <laughs> All right, guys, for this week's segment of Creatives on Fire, I'm going to take a slight deviation from what we've been talking about and talk about the writing industry and how there are sort of two basic paths that exist today in the industry that are sort of the proven paths to follow. And the reason I want to talk about this, because for some of you, you're going to go, well, yeah, I, I know that. But it astonishes me the amount of authors I talk to who don't know these things, even people that JH and I have known for years, they'll say, hey, I'm going to self-publish this next title. And I'll go, okay, cool. Are you you know, familiar with you know, the strategies around that or what's common between virtually all of the indies who are selling loads of books? And they'll kind of just look at me like a deer in the headlights. You know, look, if I was going to go build a house, I would probably look at a blueprint or some designs and get an idea. If I just was like, no, I'm just going to do this. And I went to the store and bought a bunch of lumber. I'm, I'm not going to be able to build a house. Also, even if I had a blueprint, I probably couldn't actually build a house. It was probably a terrible analogy to use. Yeah. You're going to build something. <laughs> it build may not something. be what you want. <laughs> and it may not stand up for very long. Whatever it is, it's going to be an outhouse. It will turn into an outhouse. <laughs> The point being that we should all, if we're pursuing this seriously, which I think if you're listening to us, you either like the sound of Chris's sweet voice or uh, you're seriously pursuing your author business. So you should understand these sort of basic tenets. There are sort of two basic paths to pursue. So we talk about people breaking in. By and large, they're sort of breaking in in one of two ways. Now, there are always exceptions. Of course, there are exceptions. And there are people with built-in fan bases because, you know, they're well known for something else they do or or whatever. Uh, And that's sort of not what I'm talking about. I'm sort of talking about those of us who are starting from the ground up and we are writing books and hoping to make a living at that. 
So the first path is the traditional path. This is where you're querying agents because you need an agent to submit your story to a publisher because a lot of publishers don't take unsolicited manuscripts. Or the reverse could be true too. You meet an editor or whatever. They're willing to pick up your stuff and you go from there. Maybe you get an agent, maybe you don't, whatever. But you're essentially trying to get your book into one of the major houses so that they'll publish it and put it out at Barnes and Noble. And hopefully you will sell lots of books and become a best-selling author and make a living. That's sort of path one. I think we all know about that. Maybe we don't know all the finer points and strategies around it, but we all understand that that's one strategy. The second one is the one that it seems to me a lot of people don't quite understand, and that's the self-publishing path. And for the people who are successful at self-publishing their books, they're all following a sort of method. They're not just self-publishing their book and hoping for the best. They're all sort of following a strategy. And that strategy is they tend to write towards market. They tend to focus on the tropes, whereas more traditionally you hear people say avoid tropes because people don't like that. Their view is sort of the reverse in that there are certain elements of genre that people like that draw them to them. So they want to actually focus on those and bring those in. They're going to make sure that their covers are genre appropriate. They're going to learn about keywords and categories so that they make sure their book is in the right category. Many of them are going to be using ads and they're going to learn how to run Amazon ads or Facebook ads. And that's part of their strategy. And then probably the I don't know that there's one key element, but this one is definitely a big one. Most of them are writing lots and lots of books very quickly. So these these folks are writing six or 10 or 12 or 20 books a year, and they're publishing them in a sort of rapid release strategy to massage the Zons algorithm. That's really part of what this is about. In other words, they're kind of using the tech bros tools to do their job and sell their product for them. And that's really where most of the indie or slash self-published people that have been very successful, that's how they're doing it. They're not just putting out a book every couple years or whatever. They're following the strategy. They're putting out 10 books in a series, a couple months apart each for each volume. They're making sure all the covers line up to the genre and everything else I mentioned. That's kind of important to that strategy. So if someone is thinking like, oh, I'm just going to take this one book and just self-publish it because I'm tired of submitting it and I hope it takes off, you better have a really good marketing plan because there is a strategy around, around the indie thing. And Phil, you've actually done this with one of your own series. You want to talk about your experience with it? Yeah, and I can say that um, that's a really good call out. Thank you. When I did the Blade Mage series, uh, when I first launched it, that was, uh, I, I did those things, right? Not to oversell it. Best series ever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Christopher. I did, I did all the things <laughs> on the list I said. Um, I didn't really do the ads. I toyed around with it a little bit, but I haven't quite figured that out yet. But I, I made the cover. I made sure that I tried to hit the, you know, what what they refer to as tropes, but maybe aren't quite tropes in the traditional sense, but I tried to hit the things that the that market expects. I tried to have the right cover for the genre. I spent a lot of time studying my keywords and my categories. And when I released those books, I released them each, I think, month apart or three months apart or, or whatever I did. Uh, the moral of the story is, is that the strategy sort of paid off for me. It would have paid off more if I would have you know, got the rest of the books out faster. And if any of my fans are listening, they are super not happy with me about that, I'm sure. But the moral of the story is, is that it actually did work. And I was getting quite the following and I was selling more books in that short time than I had the rest of my career. So that's why I understand this, that this strategy is proven. And, and we know we know lots of authors who are following it and being very, very successful. In one of the previous episodes, I mentioned that if you're not a member of the 20 Books to 50K group on Facebook, you should be regardless of whether you're going indie or trad or whatever. That's what that name means. That's where it came from. A self-published author, Michael Anderley, I believe, started that group under that concept. If you could write 20 books, follow this strategy, you could potentially make 
some significant money. That was sort of the the foundation of that group. And there are lots and lots of authors doing it. And we've met lots and lots of authors who have successfully implemented this and have made a career out of writing self-published books, but they have to, you know, meet all those, those steps in the strategy. That's part of it. Recipes in your books don't hurt. Yeah. I thought that was a fun idea. I'm going to keep doing that. I think putting recipes in the back of my books. Here's a, here's a thing. Those are my real recipes. That's my actual chocolate chip cookie recipe and my chocolate cake recipe and all of that. Anyways, I don't want to keep this segment too long today, but that was on my mind especially with the public service announcements I made. If you're an author, if you're new, if you're not new, I don't care. You need to understand that those are the two basic strategies. And that's not to say that you can't publish with like small indie presses or anything like that's totally fine. We're more talking about if you're wanting to do this for a living and, you know, actually get a bunch of readers and get your name out there. Those are the two proven paths that are going to help you reach that goal. Yeah, for sure. I love, you know, I love my smaller presses and my indie presses, and we've both done a lot of work with them. And they've definitely opened doors, and I wouldn't have learned many of the things I have learned if not for them. But yeah, I think for the big, if you're if you're looking for the big hit, those are your two sort of paths, right? That's, again, not to say you shouldn't work with a smaller press or anything like that, or that you shouldn't self-publish something. Maybe you've submitted something for a few years, you've hit everywhere you can, and nobody's picked it up. So now you can step back and go, well, do I want to self-publish this? Do I want to see if one of these smaller presses would pick it up for me? You know, what do I want to do, right? So it's all part of the strategy. All right. And where do we find you, Tracy? Well, my blog is tracysmorris.com. I'm on Facebook as Tracy S. Morris. I'm on Tumblr as writer Tracy. That's all I do right now as far as social media. Oh, I'm on Instagram. So I'm on Instagram as Tracy Sue Godsey, but mostly all you'll get there is pictures of whatever I'm cooking. And you will set a amazing precedence for all guests because Tracy was joining us live from a bathroom in Branson, Missouri. Top that other guest. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being our first guest. It was lovely having you on. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. And we will see you soon at SoonerCon. See you at SoonerCon. I hope to come back sometime. I'm sure we will have you back on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, JH, where can we find you? I am on pretty much all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all as J.H. Fleming. I haven't called this one out before, but I will go ahead. I actually am also a freelance editor. So if you are an author in need of an editor, um, you can find me on Fiverr. I'm under J.H. Fleming there as well. You can also find me on my website. We'll have a new YouTube channel soon, especially with the new album coming out. And other than that, you might catch me at a Ren Fair or a convention. And I'm Philip Dreyer Duncan, and you can find me at philipdreyerduncan.com or on the Twitters or the Facebooks or wherever. You don't have to find me. Just go find my books. That's what I care about. And Chris, where can the people find you? Please don't. <laughs> Listen, people, we're starting this some way, somehow. Hashtag Chris Sounds Hot. <laughs> <laughs>